As soon as I understood that you didn't have to make things rhyme, I started finding poems that I was really moved by. The first time I read The Hollow Man, it was mind-blowing. Hello, John J. Thompson here, and it's difficult to express just how excited I was when the answer came back from his manager. Bruce can talk with you next Friday morning if that works for you. You see, Bruce Coburn is, while he's one of the reasons True Tunes even exists, the Canadian singer-songwriter has released some of the most compelling music of the last 50 years. He's a master songwriter crafting vivid imagery through poetic lyrics and setting it all to memorable melodies that absolutely burst out of any genre box that attempts to contain them. He also happens to be an amazingly versatile guitarist, be it fingerstyle acoustic picking or tuneful electric riffs. And understand, this isn't just another fit of JJT enthusiasm on display. Critics and music experts of all stripes consider Coburn right alongside names like Richard Thompson, Leo Kotke, Jackson Brown, Leonard Cohen, Patty Griffin, and even Bob Dylan. And then there's the fact that this virtuosity has long been in the pursuit of ideas and images that allow his unabashed Christian faith to collide with and inform songs about justice, love, environmental care, and the celebration of beauty. I'm going to ask the question, please answer if you can. Is there anybody's children can tell me? Tell me what is the soul of a man? Won't somebody tell me? Answer if you can. I want somebody to tell me. Tell me what is the soul of a man? Bruce Coburn has written over 350 songs and released 30 studio or live albums and four different compilations since 1970. 22 of his albums have been certified either gold or platinum in Canada. He is an officer in the Order of Canada, has received 13 Juno Awards, the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys, is in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, and in 2001 he was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame at a ceremony that included testimonials by Midnight Oil's Peter Garrett, Margot Timmons of Cowboy Junkies, and Bono. He authored a critically acclaimed memoir entitled Rumors of Glory that was released in 2014. I highly recommend it as the most transparent, inspiring, and useful music memoir I have read since Cash by Johnny Cash. He holds multiple honorary doctorate degrees and continues to write and record. He recently released a 30-song collection of his singles called, simply, Bruce Coburn's Greatest Hits, 1970-2020. to Tokyo, I never can sleep in your arms. Mine keeps on ringing like a fire alarm. Me and all these other dice bouncing around in the cup. Did you have to show me?
So yeah, Bruce Coburn is a pretty big deal. Not primarily because of his success, though. Coburn is important because of his excellence. In his case, and I know this can be rare, his success has come as an indication of his immense talent, hard work, and dogged artistic vision. For those of us struggling along the way of faith, he stands as a rare example of a modern musician who has thrived in the mainstream marketplace of ideas and art, taking the gospel seriously, but never allowing his faith to limit to whom he addresses his art. Later in the show, we will roll out the True Tunes jukebox for a special treat. I have invited my good friend, singer, songwriter, painter, and fellow Coburn enthusiast Chris Taylor to join me for a conversation about some of the songs that meant the most to us over the years, but that were not necessarily among the so-called greatest hits. So, Chris and I will dig deep into the catalog for our session. It's all happening, right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey, this is Mark Feldbush, and I'm a supporter of the True Tunes podcast. I've been reading True Tunes since it was a print journal and first on the interwebs in the late 90s. When the podcast became a reality, well, I knew I wanted to be a part of this ongoing conversation. I'm glad to say that folks like me and many others support the podcast with monthly donations of five, 10, even $20 that help to cover the costs of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality lossless WAV files of each episode that we get to download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTunes swag, and a whole lot more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash TrueTunes, or you can find the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing isn't quite right for you, but you'd like to give a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that at the show notes page. Thanks for listening. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. We featured Coburn in the pages of the old True Tunes news magazine when our good friend, the late Dwight Ozard, talked to him upon the release of his Christmas album in 1993. And while I have had the great privilege of meeting him several times over the years, I'll be honest, there were some nerves when it came time for us to talk. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. When you sat down to, to do this project of looking at the singles 
did anything kind of surprise you? Uh, were you, what kind of relationship do you have with your your past self <laughs> when you when you go back and listen to those early songs? Do you, <laughs> an ongoing one? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because every time I do a show, I've got to sing old songs, among other things, right? Or even just reminding myself of stuff through the songs, like the, the if I go back and listen to the records, my young daughter, for instance, likes to hear the the albums every now and then, and so put on a record and all of a sudden I'm transported back to the early 80s or some other period, you know, depending on which album. And so it, it invites all this kind of a flood of memories. Every song has its own set of connections like that. So um, the past, this is, was it Anita Franco's album that she made with um, Utah Phillips? It's called The Past Didn't Go Anywhere. <laughs> and and it, it's... Uh, you know, it, it doesn't go anywhere. You talk in your book about your early years. You started off in a certain lane doing that real purely folk acoustic music. And then when you took a step towards the more blues band oriented stuff, the audience had a reaction that kind of startled you and you had a reaction to that. And then you, it seemed like for the first several years of your professional career, you were kind of acting and reacting before you were able to settle into a more kind of holistic, comfortable place of just who you were. I date my professional career to the beginning of 1965. Uh, sorry, 66, I guess. So I dropped out of music school. I joined a band and we were going to be the next Beatles because the Beatles came from England and that wasn't the U.S. And why not have one come from Canada? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not sure I bought into that, but this is how the, how the boys talked, you know. So and that, of course, didn't go anywhere really in the end, although it did get me going writing songs. Over the next few years, I played in several different bands, writing songs for those different bands. And I liked playing in bands. I, I mean, I liked playing electric guitar and making lots of noise. And, you know, I, got, I had a little sort of... Uh, Jimi Hendrix-like shtick that I did, biting the guitar and you know playing it with the mic stand and stuff like that. And I stopped biting the guitar when a piece of tooth flew into the audience one night. But through this period, I developed a little body of songs that I liked best when I played them alone. You know, the bands were some of them were okay, but they were never great. And the songs that I ended up liking best were ones that, like I say, sounded best when I just played them myself. And I thought, you know, I'm tired of the whole arguing over who was going to do what and what context and, and with, with as people do in, in bands that don't make any money. And when there's disagreements over material and the musical direction of the bands, all those kinds of things that would come up. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go solo. I think, I think I'm not the only person who's tired of hearing big, long, psychedelic guitar wanks. I, I, and I was interested in, in acoustic music all through there. I'd been, I'd learned to finger pick listening to the old country blues guys and, and, and absorbing stuff from Ramblin' Jack Elliott, from from uh, all sorts of the people that used to perform in the clubs in that that era, it, you know, it just it just made sense to somehow become a solo thing. And of course, it, it felt artificial in a way. I got to rephrase that. It didn't feel artificial. It felt like me. But when I look back on it, I can see the degree to which I didn't know who I was. And, uh, you know, that, uh, I think for most of us, it takes a long time to figure that out in our lives. But I just basically grew into that 
role. And but, but you know, halfway through the seventies, I started thinking, well, you know, I'm kind of tired of my own company. I'd like to have a band again. These were bands from that point onward. The bands I've had are bands that where I exercised control over the musical right. direction, and there were no arguments. It was just I just hired people to play with me, and I was lucky enough to be able to hire really great people. So I, I had a bunch of good bands over over the years, and that continues. Although, you know, well, for the last couple of years, until December, I hadn't done anything with any <laughs> either solo or otherwise. We did get manage to pull off a little bit of touring before Christmas, so. I was very happy about that. You know, growing into yourself, I mean, there's a feedback thing that happens with an audience when you're a songwriter. You write songs that express something of yourself. I mean, however tangential the angle might be or, you know, however protective you are of revealing too many things about yourself, there's, there is some of you goes into these songs. In my case, it's a fair amount of me because I'm not writing songs from... Well, uh, you know, or very rarely, anyway, from somebody else's point of view, it's always my own. But uh, this a feedback loop kind of develops, so you understand what, how people perceive what you offer them, which is always different from how you perceive it. And in comparing those things, you start to discover more about yourself. There's a process of discovery that's kind of just built into the to the whole thing. Passing themselves off as leaders Kiss the ladies, shake hands with the fellows And it's open for business like a cheap bordello And they call it democracy 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 You see the loaded eyes of the children too Trying to make the best of it, the way kids do One day you're gonna rise from your habitual feast To find yourself staring down the throat of the beast They call a revolution IMF, dirty MF Takes away everything it can get Always making certain that there's one thing left Keep them on the hook with insupportable debt Your songs, they carry a lot spiritually, socially, emotionally. Those lyrics are dense, and yet your melodic sensibility ever since the beginning make them so much more accessible than most or at least many folk songs that are, say, social activism songs or, or even uh, religious songs or something like that. Do you think that, that those early years kind of chasing the Beatles and, and thinking in terms of pop music did that kind of help inform your songwriting chops definitely uh, that all that music had an effect i mean i i was a big dylan fan beatles fan rolling stones fan you know i mean I, these are people who are writing really good songs of, of different types the idea that you could actually say something in a song instead of just having it be about teen angst and you know sex was profoundly affecting on me and and those were kind of my models for how to do that it was elvis presley that made me want to be a musician you know the early elvis not the blue hawaii elvis but the 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 elvis that sang arthur crudup songs and 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 little richard songs and stuff like that i mean that that elvis was powerful and the songs were powerful in their way and and i mean i still love listening to his versions of those songs and also the originals. 
right away at the beginning there's there's a model for me of how to put words and music together with when the words have some content and I just went from there I guess I mean I, I it was never very conscious it's conscious in a given song when I'm writing a song I'm thinking about those things but you know I'll, I'll have a set of lyrics and come up with some music for them and it doesn't quite fit perfectly so how do we correct that you know those kinds of considerations are there mm-hmm. but otherwise it's it's just something I guess it, I, I can safely attribute it to the influences over the years of, of all these different types of music Chucky beats it down the alley by the chicken packers By the time I reach the corner, they've all vanished Just a deaf kid talking like Popeye To a large, fleshy, laughing man in a blue shirt You pay your money and you take your chance When you're dealing with love and romance There's a pop sensibility to your song craft that even when you bring in the jazz elements and the more esoteric musical elements... Yeah, for me, it's a lot about just what feels right. I start with lyrics, which is not really typical, I don't think. I mean, I know other people who do, but but uh, most songwriters start with a melody and then try to find words to fit. But I I work in the other direction, and I've got a set of lyrics. And when I usually they're pretty well formed before I start looking for music for them, they'll still undergo some changes. And, and often because of the music. But, you know, you, you, I want to say this. Here's what this song says and what kind of music fits it. And there's, there's the music. do we want the music to rephrase that? What we don't want the music to do is cover up the lyrics. You want the lyrics to be audible and, and to make sense in terms of how they hang on the melody so that people can kind of understand what they're hearing. But you, you also want it to be musical. So there's this little balancing act that goes on. And, and it's I think of it in terms of creating the music creating a kind of field for the lyrics to exist in and that usually starts with a guitar part and then i'll try to find a melody and and that that works the melody is kind of the last thing in the mix so it's you know some i some of the songs work better than others in my view that way Um, because of that approach i the, the melodies tend to be simple you know, there's some, I mean, some beautifully melodic music that has much more complex melodies than what I come up with. You know, I limit myself musically that way. For me, that's a natural way to do it, and it works, you know, it's just, it's, it, it go, I go by feel, pretty much. Does this, does this field feel like the right place for these lyrics? High-speed drift on a prairie road, hot tires sing like a string being bowed, sudden town rears up, then explodes, fragments resolve into white line cold world on silver wheels black earth energy receptor fields undulate under a gray cloud shield we outrun a river color brick red mud that cleaves apart hills soil rich as blood In your memoir, you talk with great candor about your 
your frailty, your failures, your um, vulnerability when you were describing the events that led up to you becoming a Christian in 1973, the way your path took a turn at that point. When you came to faith and had that experience, were you aware of 1973? That's like the height of the whole Jesus movement thing, all these hippie mm-hmm. kids becoming Christians and all that stuff. Were you aware of that? Was that something? I, I didn't really pick up on that too much in there. For me, it was a personal journey, but I was certainly aware of, of that other thing, too. I mean, I I remember being uh, accosted by a, one of the Jesus people that used to haunt the streets, uh, and he, he wanted to pray for me. And I, I said, okay, you know, I sound like a good idea, why not? And he did, yeah. and it uh, something happened, not a big thing. I mean, it was, but I felt touched by something that wasn't just his hand on my shoulder, you know. And what made me say yes to that? It was just like an inner prompting of some kind that that I had no reason to ignore because I was, I wasn't on my way anywhere. It was, you know, the timing was right. And I remember going to church mm-hmm. a couple of times after that, with very limited benefit because uh, soon after that, I went to a church in Montreal. It was some kind of evangelical style church and you know i thought the the pastor gave a pretty good sermon i stopped to tell him so on the way out and he just looked me up and down like i was a piece of absolute filth and and Hmm. didn't want to he just like get get away from me was the vibe right he didn't say that anything he didn't say anything like that he kind of nodded his head and said, said thank you but but the vibe was just awful it was before i thought of myself as a christian i just let this happen my then wife had embraced evangelical Christianity, a pretty hardcore version of it, by way of having an adolescent rebellion against very free-thinking parents. So she had this background. <laughs> she'd abandoned the, the, the extreme aspects of that. But, but, uh, but we, we used to talk about things in the Bible. I would say, talk about, cite these outrageous examples of horrible human behavior in the Bible. And she said, yeah, but, you know, look at this part. And... So, okay, the conversation for me with other people about God had been going on for a while mm. before the events of, that the book describes in, in Stockholm in 1973, like that. Uh, so, so I was kind of set up for it. I got married in a church because my wife wanted to. And I liked the idea because I was obsessed with all things medieval and you know, a, a gothic-style church with stained glass windows and stuff just fit the bill perfectly. And, and, and so we had a tiny little wedding with just just parents and siblings there. But my brother was about to hand me the, the ring. We're, we're there at the altar halfway through the ceremony, and, the, and all of a sudden I became aware of this presence there. Uh, this was 1970, actually the last day of 1969. And this presence, I thought, well... What on earth can that be? It was very positive. It was just, but it was as real as if somebody was actually standing there, except there was nothing to see. Mm. And I thought, well, I, I'm in a Christian church. That's got to be Jesus. <laughs> Who else could it be? So I, that, I went away from that, taking the idea of Christianity seriously. Mm. Uh, but I didn't identify myself that way until this point. And when I, you just found that I needed to pray. I needed to ask for help for uh, the with the stuff I was wrestling with and the help showed up in more or less the same form that it had that day in the church. And so I thought, well, okay, this is twice. And I, you know, I think I better start calling myself a Christian. And then you wrote all the diamonds, 
shortly thereafter and yeah, the, next led day. On, the next day. What was that like yeah. and how did that, how did that feel? I always feel elated when I start getting a song, when I, when I feel, uh, this was no exception. We, we Kitty and I took a boat ride on the Stockholm archipelago. Stockholm is, uh, they, they, they like to liken it to Venice. It's not anything like Venice actually, but, but it's got a lot of water and it, it's built on a bunch of little islands. And, uh, so, you know, we took we took a boat ride around the islands, and it was a beautiful, sunny day in August, and kind of cool but crystalline feeling, and, and the water, the waves were sparkling, and I just got this. I they looked like diamonds, and I just I got all the diamonds in the world that mean anything to me are right here. I'm looking at them. That's how the song started, and then it, it then I realized what I wanted to say was what I wanted to express the feeling of having discovered this connection with the divine, you know, in the form it came. So it's uh, the bridge of the song references Jesus, but and the sense of renewal, because I felt like I had been given a way out of a kind of self-created trap that had built up over time. And, and so there's the, the sense of dying trees will, will still grow greener when you pray. That's what that's a reference to. But otherwise, it's really just, you know, a product of the surroundings. right back with more of my conversation with Bruce Coburn after this. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you join me over here. 
You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated and around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you discover them. Okay, back to my conversation with Bruce Coburn. same time there were other artists that had been folk artists rock artists that started to integrate faith into their music but many of them kind of seceded from culture to create proper christian music for christian audiences and this whole industry kind of emerged for that and you you stayed on your path were were you aware of that kind of christian music world at at what at some point were you ever tempted to that or invited into that space or were you just kind of always on your own path? I met a, a number of people who were, who took that route and, and I, I think, it, you know, I, I have total respect for their choices, but I, for me, it, it didn't seem, it, it didn't seem pertinent at all. I mean, I like if, if God wants me to say something to people, 
maybe, you know, who knows what's projection and what isn't, right? Like, this is ego projection. I want to keep saying things to people. So, therefore, <laughs> right. I assume God wants me to do that, too, which may or may not be true, but although history would suggest right. that it was true because I'm still here doing it. But it's, I just felt like I didn't want to just sing to the converted. I wanted to, I wanted to share with people like me what my experience was. I had this sense all along of, of the universe being bigger than just, just what you can see and touch. And um, I wanted to share that with people. And, and I guess I'm still doing that. Like that's every time I feel like I've discovered something new or something's been shown to me, I want to share that with people. And often those things end up in songs. And so I, I never felt like I wanted to be part of a tribe doing this. And I, I like the idea of singing for people who get what I'm singing about, too. I mean, there's, a, there's that attraction, of course. Like The whole Christian community doesn't necessarily fit that description. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who are scratching their heads over, what the heck? But um, it is fun when, you, when I feel like you know, people are receiving things in, in, the, in the terms in which they're being expressed. Right. You know, that's part of the challenge of songwriting in general is to kind of make sure that happens as much as you can. I was a dweller by a dark stream A crying heart hooked on a dark dream In my convict soul I saw your love gleam And you showed me what you'd done Thank you, joyous son Jesus, thank you, joyous son As you grew, you really dove into the deep end of complicated things related to justice issues. And I remember someone saying, well, I don't know, you know, there's these Christian songs and then there's these political songs and then there's these love songs. And I, and I thought, how can you be a Christian and not, when you find out about what's going on in Guatemala, not be upset about that? How, how can your faith not impact how you look at love and relationships. I, I never understood the segregation of those things. You just seem to refuse to segregate that stuff. It just fused all together into something. Oh, life. The, the job of a songwriter or any artist is to reflect what, the, what you can grasp of life and put it in some kind of communicable form so that we can all share it. And that's the mandate. So why, why split it up into things? I mean, it becomes artificial when you do that. It might be that your particular gifts push you that way, and I'm, there's nothing really inherently wrong with specializing, but um, that hasn't been my path at all. I, I feel like the whole ball game is fair game. And so, I mean, the, there was pressure of a sort, I mean, I, from the Christian community from to be more conformist, I suppose, is, is the way to say it, but... The pressure never amounted to much, and there was equal pressure from the other side, or actually much stronger pressure from the other side, to not say anything at all about my faith. Because radio didn't want to play Christian songs, and, and I mean, commercial radio didn't, and 
back then there wasn't commercial Christian radio like there is now, but but uh, at least that I was aware of. And so you got, you know, the the business side of things was like, oh, you got to play down this Christian thing, you know. And uh, to some extent, I, I I understood it. I mean, because when you sail out under a particular flag, people who see that flag are going to form opinions without knowing anything about you. We all do that. So it's kind of inescapable. But, and how do you minimize the negative potential of that? You know, like I don't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want people who really didn't know what I was doing to see me as part of that commercial Christian music world. Right. So I, there's a lot of times when I didn't say much about being a Christian. I mean, it happened, we got a lesson from, in that from, from England. The first time I did a major gig in England was a festival that was a Christian arts festival called the Greenbelt Festival. It was a very, very good festival and, and right. uh, all kinds of stuff. It, it called itself a Christian arts festival, but it really was very, very broad in its interpretation of what that meant and, right. and a, a very interesting event. But the English music press wrote me off based on yeah. that. Oh, so I just get oh yeah that Christian dickhead you know whatever I mean that's this is what you got right I mean, the English press was not constrained right. with any more good taste then than they are now and and the the <laughs> uh, you know so we had we, we we looked at this it's like well this is not that's unfortunate because a lot of people that would get this music are not going to hear it because of this right. so there have been times when I did play it down in the eyes of some. I, I don't really feel like I ever did. I mean, anybody who asked would get the answer yes. And if they asked me if I was a Christian, I'd always say yes. The music's there. I mean, that's that's really the center of things for me. I mean, what I do, what, what my life is worth from any exterior perspective is the music. You know, I mean, nobody else knows much about me. My family, intimate friends, you know, do, but... And I don't know what my life means to them, but 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 what I can see it meaning in the big picture is it all has to do with the songs, and, I, and I'm I'm happy to to have that body work out there. handful of us have tried to cover your songs and there's a few that i can play pretty well but man you you write some hard songs to play sometimes because <laughs> you're actually a really really good guitar player <laughs> well you might need to make a, a dumbed down songbook for folk singers like me i went through a phase of the early 90s where i did i, I sort of did that the, the album uh, called nothing but a burning Light yes yes it features songs that were deliberately written mostly with that in mind like that i thought i've got all these songs people want to play the songs and they can't unless they actually are pretty good players. So I 
intentionally wrote a bunch of songs that that you didn't have to play my guitar parts to have them work. Right. In the end, I got bored with that approach and went back to the other yeah. way of doing things. But <laughs> it, it was a good exercise to, to try and do that. I think not every song on the album... Well, actually, yeah, I think so. There's, no, there's nothing on that album that you can't play by just strumming something. Actually, that's true of a lot of the albums. There's so, some songs, like a song like High Winds, White Sky, it really needs that rolling kind of intricate guitar part. And there, there are a lot of songs like that, but there's also like Lovers in a Dangerous Time. You can strum that and it works fine. You know, so it's, um, I just, I love the guitar. So I kind of, I'm always looking for things. As I get older and my fingers get stiffer and arthritic, I, it, I have to kind of rethink some of those guitar parts myself, actually, because some of them are harder to execute than. Mm, wow. Th that I'm comfortable with now. <laughs> Somebody touched me Like the rain on the wind Left me alone Feeling like I've been skinned But I know you're with me Whatever I go through Somebody touched me Speaking of lovers in a dangerous time, let's sit there for a second. I mean, that song uh, and that line, you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight, has been a, a creed for me and so many other people. It's just such a powerful line. Tell me about that song and the, the energy of that song, the optimism of that song that's so sober. It's so anchored in the struggle that we're facing if our, if we're awake and if we're alive and if we're paying attention. Tell me about this song and how it how it came about and then how it sits with you today when you play it. Well, it's 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 it's, it's been refreshed lately because of COVID and all that's gone with it. When I wrote the song, I, what triggered it was my older daughter, who at that time was she wasn't even ten years old yet. But there, but there she is, you know. In, you know, and the little kids are experimenting with kind of holding hands and having buddies and stuff. And I'm, it was the era of AIDS, and and as on top, so on top of the the specter of nuclear war that I'd grown up with, which had not gone away, and the obvious. The beginning understanding of of what was facing us environmentally, um, you know, not on. I mean, I I was coming to understand it from reading other people, but the the knowledge was out there. All the all the same stuff that we're worried about now was worried about then too, but by fewer people. So there was all that, and then on top of all that, they couldn't even become lovers without ha having their lives threatened. I, I this that just seems so horrible that I wanted to say something about it and, and and say something encouraging about it. So, you know, I didn't write the song for little kids I, I, because I, you know, it was obvious that they were growing up with a situation that they had no clue about yet. But the situation they were growing up into, which we were all exposed to in our various ways, was um, just, you know, in, increasingly dire. You know, it's like... I don't think there's been a time in the history of the world that wasn't dangerous for somebody, but it's kind of a question of perspective, right, right, you know, right. where, where, how you fit in the history that's unfolding around you. And, you know, I grew up lucky. I grew up with, we, we had that Cold War scenario, but that was it. 
otherwise life was pretty darn comfortable growing up for me and it and it still was for kids in the 80s too but it just you could see where it was going now we're seeing even better where it's going and it's it doesn't help us to right. so far we're not making very good decisions based on, on on that extra bit of seeing but even phrases like nothing good comes without a fight we have to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight that's that's so simple, but especially for a kid, and I was 12, 13 when, when that came out, I needed a phrase like that that could become anthemic for me, an encouragement to me that if I want to be on the side of good, it's going to be a struggle. We're going to step away from my conversation with Mr. Coburn and crank up the True Tunes jukebox with my friend, singer, songwriter, and visual artist, Chris Taylor. Chris, both as a solo artist and as a member of the amazing band Love Coma, who put out a fantastic album last year, by the way, has been part of the extended True Tunes family for over 30 years. When I thought about having a back and forth with someone about Coburn, he was the first person I thought of, and fortunately, he was available. And the jukebox is rolling, and we have our good friend, special guest DJ with us today, Mr. Chris Taylor from San Antonio, Texas. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation. This is this is fun. And so briefly, what's your uh, background? When did Bruce Coburn first come into your heart? My goodness, it had to be somewhere in like 85, 86 a friend of mine, Baron Wiley, I think a mutual friend of ours Baron. now, uh, he turned me on to Bruce's music, first through cassettes and CDs, and then I think we actually went to go see him play live and uh, hung out after the show outside of the club or whatever whatever venue, and we got a chance to spend a few minutes with Bruce, and it was like, you know, it was pretty cool. I wasn't quite starstruck because he didn't have that kind of effect on me. He was very chill and normal but it was just one of those like i can't believe like he's right here i listened to him for a long time and now he's standing right here with me so it was pretty <laughs> it's pretty cool uh, and and if you'll allow us you've shown me a picture of that moment and maybe we can post that on the uh yeah yeah on the show notes page here so people can see that at proof of that show. yeah i don't have photo evidence of my first time or two getting to meet bruce but i was definitely 
uh, starstruck and um, stammering most of the time. (laughs) You know, he is so intellectual and so deep on so many levels that all I was afraid is like not embarrassing myself. And I didn't want to get into too long of a conversation for fear of completely embarrassing myself and not knowing what I was talking about. Uh, So it was more like, hey, I'm a big fan. You know, I love you. Thank you. (laughs) Let's get out of here as quickly as possible. (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, Chris is a singer and songwriter, artist, has been for a long time, a band called Love Coma, solo stuff, also a painter. Uh, he's done illustrations. In fact, he's done a couple of illustrations we've used for covers of different episodes of the podcast here. Uh, longtime friend of mine and of Bruce's. And uh, so, Chris, would you say that, that Bruce Coburn's songwriting and his style has been an influence on you as an artist? Um, yeah, not like in a direct way. Because, again, I felt like even in his his guitar playing and the way he wrote lyrics was like so far beyond anything I could do. I just admired him. I was just in awe of him as a writer, but I didn't feel like I could I could reach that. Just the way he finger picks and uses his thumb and the and I'm like, my goodness. And just what he was writing about. He was like a a well-studied, well-oiled lyric-writing machine of, a, of an artist. And so, so in a way, what his music made me feel inspired me. But I did not feel like I could obtain to, to becoming anything like him. What we're going to do is we'll just kind of trade back and forth. You put a record in the jukebox, I'll put a record, and we'll go back and forth for a while. And then... Uh, uh, we'll see where it goes. So what's the, we're going to let you go first since you're the guest. Uh, All right. Your, your dance floor. So what's the first record we're going to load up uh, okay. on your list? I'm, I'm going to go way back, way back to his first, his first offering, uh, the Bruce Coburn record. I think it's 1970. And At least song, the same year I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was a year ahead of you. <laughs> and I didn't discover this until much later on in my life, but this is a song called Spring Song. It's just amazing that his very first record, he's already got so many things going on. What What is it about this song that caused you to, to choose this one, Chris? Well, you know, one man and his guitar, sort of the drones and the melodies he can pull off. I mean, he doesn't even need a band around him to keep it interesting and powerful to me. As the title suggests, it t- you know, it celebrates renewal. I absolutely love the lyrics to this song. I mean, right out of the gate such beautiful stuff i feel like i feel like i could just sit it's like it feels like a morning song to me i could just sit in the presence of the of of that melody and the and just the the warmth of the tones on his guitar that to me was the the immediate connection i also love that even uh, you you can hear how he's connected to that singer songwriter folk style that was so dominant and prominent uh right then but 
he's not doing it the same way that anybody else that I know of was doing it. Even there at the very beginning, uh, there's a a darker hue to what he's doing. There's it's just there's something unique about it. That's a great choice, man. Thanks, and I'm glad we got something from that first record. For my first choice, I'm going to go with the 1976 song, so it's still pretty old, from the In the Falling Dark record, a song called Lord of the Starfields. Lord of the Starfields Ancient of days Universe maker Here's a song in your praise Wings of the storm Beginning and end You make my heart leap Like a banner in the wind Oh love that fires the sun Keep me This one to me was like, I, I can't remember. I definitely discovered it right when I first was discovering Coburn because I was an early teenager, you know, 12, 13 years old. So 82, 83. And there was a already a compilation that, that had come out of his stuff. And I was able to just discover after his first couple songs, I just went down that rabbit hole. But when I heard this, I was like, what? This is a this is a worship song. Like this is, we should be doing this song at church. Was this one that you had, uh, had, had ever noticed before Chris? Yeah. I, I really loved this song. There's something about Bruce and his, the lyric writing and the delivery in his voice, especially in this song that almost makes it feel effortless. Like he's not even trying too hard. Sometimes when you're talking about, the heavy things like the spirituality and the God and it, it feels very forced or it feels like a kind of propaganda. But with Bruce, it just feels like it's his heart just revealed. And I think that this song to me is so beautiful. And just as an aside, back in 2014, Michael Rowe and I toured together and we played this song several times on that tour. And I was just, Mike kind of took the lead on it and I was just sort of backing him up. And it just was a, a beautiful thing to play. And we played it in all sorts of different types of venues. So to be sort of inside that song for the first time in my life in a completely different way than other than listening to it was, was something, it was a treat for me. That's awesome. It's a kind of song, I, one of the reasons I wish more people that were doing Christian music would be familiar with Bruce because he sets a bar pretty high in a song like this and and i don't hear this kind of influence 
coming into what we think of as contemporary Christian music. I do hear it in people like Terry Taylor and Mike Rowe and some of those guys, Mark Hurd and, and people. But the stuff that became really popular in Christian music is is often, like you're saying, it's it's sometimes it's trying too hard and other times I guess it's not trying enough. But Lord of the Starfields, to me, sets a really high bar. In 1986, in a songbook, he, he made a little comment where he just said, he, I was trying to write something like a psalm. And mm. I thought, well, I think he, I think he did it. Oh, love that fires the sun keep me So what's your next song here, Chris? My next song is called Pacing the Cage. Oh, man. One of the absolute best. Ah, the Pacing the Cage. Sunset is an angel weeping Holding out a bloody sword No matter how I squint, I cannot Make out what it's pointing toward Sometimes you feel like you've lived too long Days drip slowly on the page You catch yourself Facing the cage I never followed his music enough to know which ones were the hits. You know what I mean? I just kind of dove into what I loved. And so I never knew if this one was a hit or not, but I just knew that, like most of his songs, the guitar chords instantly put a warmth in my heart. As soon as the song arrives on the scene, I love the way he plays. Again, I think he's a master of opening lines. And uh, he says, sunset is an angel weeping, holding out a bloody sword. He just has a way of just drawing you in with music and with, uh, with a great opening line. I mean, you can, you can say that about just about every one of his songs. And because I am a musician, I listen to songs probably differently than the way an average person who just, you know, turns on the radio would listen to a song. And... For me, there's some songs that are so beautiful and so good, I don't want to know what chords he's playing. I don't want to know that it's probably just A minor to a C to a D, like, or whatever it is. I want the mystery and the magic to be like, I don't want to know. I, I just, I want to appreciate it as a piece of, uh, I like to say magic because I think, you know, it's that beautiful thing that a song will do to uh, your heart or your mind that breaks down things. So the minute I hear that guitar, intro i'm like uh i'm melted that comes from the charity of night record which is 1996 so we've jumped ahead you know more than a dozen years although there's there's evolution and there's still the dna remains remarkably consistent throughout 50 years but it is kind of interesting that going to see him in concert he would play that this same songs that that became sort of anthemic to us and this is definitely one of those songs but to me that it comes out in 1996 shows that this is not an artist who's kind of locked in amber in the the 70s or or even his 80s phase um in the 90s and even now he continues to make great stuff and it 
it's a dark it's such a it, ha, it has the potential to, to feel so bleak as I really concentrated on it and, and thought about it and then read some things that he said about it the pacing the cage is not so much about the futility that of life as it is the traps that we find ourselves in that are often of our own making sometimes the road leads through dark places sometimes the darkness is your friend today these eyes scan bleached out land for the coming of the outbound stage Facing the cage Facing the cage My next song, speaking of songs that were way over my head, is uh, the song Fascist Architecture. This, this one was definitely one that I was had to go talk to some people and, and look some stuff up and say, what in the world is he talking about fascist architecture? Was this song on your radar? Do you have memories of this song? Or oh, Very vague memories. And listening yeah. back to it, I just immediately fell in love with the, the lyric, you know, got to tell my old lady, got to tell my little girl, there isn't anything in the world that can lock up my love again. I just was, I love yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that refrain, you know. Welcome to the 1980s. You know, the walls are falling and I'm okay. Uh, the rhythm section and the synthesizer groove in the album recording of this song is, they, they, I think they really carry it. And uh, Coburn's rhythm guitar is like this, almost like a hypnotic trance that, that just throughout the verses just really sets this super yeah. cool tone. The thing that really pulled me into this song was the line when it says, I'm walls are falling and I'm okay under the mercy and I'm okay been through the ringer but I'm okay like that was what I was going through as a kid I was coming through some pretty serious trauma and I didn't understand what fascist architecture of my own design meant I had to go look up the fact Mm -hmm. that he had he had been in Italy and seen this these buildings that Mussolini had built that were just ridiculously huge and they were designed architecturally to reinforce uh, the power of the triumph of humanity or something, but they ended up kind of dwarfing people. And, and there's this commentary all wrapped up in that one line that in his own head, he had built up these edifices, these structures that now had to be kind of torn down. At a, as a 13-year-old kid, 
I still didn't realize all the work I was going to have to do, but to have somebody say bloody nose and burning eyes raised in laughter to the skies, I've been in trouble, but I'm okay. Been through Mm -hmm. the ringer, but I'm okay. That got me. And it pulled me in to say, okay, this is somebody like Mark Hurd. I can, I can listen to this guy. Like there's something here for a kid like me. Yeah. So Chris, back to you. What's your next song for us? My next song is actually from the album that got me into Bruce Coburn. My goodness, nothing but a burning light. And the song is called A Dream Like Mine. So why did you pick this one, Chris? Well, first of all, I could relate to it, you know, lyrically being a young wannabe singer-songwriter uh, with my, I have my notebooks of song lyrics and my desire to want to start making music and going out and be a traveling, touring musician. That to me was my dream. So to hear uh, Bruce say, when you got a dream like mine, nobody can take you down. When you got a dream like mine, nobody can push you around. And I feel like when you're a young kid and you're trying to do something, especially people around you are like, yeah, 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 and your family's very dismissive and wanting you to go in a different direction. I I took that literally as, okay, no, I've got this dream and I'm going to sort of take it and run with it no matter what. But I was also a huge fan of T-Bone Burnett and I think that's what woke me up to this record especially because the minute you put it on you know it's like that guitar sound that that almost like spaghetti western tremolo guitar sound and the production was like baritone guitar solo in this one just yeah gratuitous and perfect (laughs) yes love it Yeah, yeah yeah and another interesting thing about this song is that this is one that he was sort of asked to write that was supposed to be for a film. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, and it was based, the, the title at least was based on a novel of the same name, A Dream Like Mine, that has to do with Native American injustices that were happening. Um, there's a per- particular story, uh, a novel, but it really represents what was actually going on. And he loosely bases the song, or it's inspired by that, it's consistent with that, but that's not at all how I heard it. The line, today I dream of how it used to be, things were different before the picture shifts to how it's going to be balance restored that's the kind of lyric that basically cemented that i'm going to try to be a songwriter you know because right there you've got eschatology you've got historical perspective you've got theology you've got the the idea that things are are not heading off a cliff in the long run i want to stick in the 90s for a minute here and uh a song that I think I probably first heard this at one of his concerts 
And then when the record, this is the second record that T-Bone Burnett produced, Dark to the Heart, from 94. So it's the follow-up to um, Nothing But a Burning Light, but it's a little less rootsy, a little less Americana, a little bit more straight ahead. Um, But the song Listen for the Laugh uh, has definitely been one that has stuck with me. It's not the laughter of a child of toys. It's not the laughter of the president's boys. It's not the laughter of the media king. This laughter doesn't sell you anything. this song listening through all of the all of the things that are not love that are not the divine but then when we're listening for what it is and the fact that it sounds like laughter <laughs> that's just you know how, how did this song hit you this has got that drum beat that works every time i call it the coburn blues the train beat that that <laughs> vibe but He's got a verse in there, you know, it's not the laughter of a child with toys, it's not the laughter of the president's boys, it's not the laughter of the media king. This laughter doesn't sell you anything. Come yeah. on. <laughs> either yeah. if you're gonna write lyrics, either shoot for that or just give up altogether. I also love that line, it's more of a chainsaw in a velvet glove. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a great oh great gosh. image. Oh my gosh. What you've done to me, John, and in, in bringing this to me and, and sharing this moment with me with Bruce Coburn's songs is you've caused me now to want to stop because I'm making a record that's kind of behind the scenes, you know. I'm not I'm I'm not uh, going to put it out anytime soon, but I'm I'm writing, and now all of a sudden it just makes me want to erase every lyric I've written. <laughs> it's something else because it causes you know, as a lyric writer, it, it just causes you to stop and think and maybe rework or rethink, reinvent. Uh, you know, but I'm me. I can only do what I do. But what an inspiration! This one is from Bruce's most recent vocal project from 2017 the album's called bone on bone and this is a song called stab at matter you got lamentation you got dislocation you got sirens wailing and walls come down you got revelation you got Am I safe to assume that this is also new to you, Chris? This was, yeah, this is brand new, and I really loved this song. I um, never heard it until about three days ago or so, and, uh, Instantly fell in love with it. Again, another sort of train beat, the big gospel chorus. Uh, so, I mean, you can't beat that, you know? Come right. on. This song is another example of, of just the kind of songwriting depth that Coburn has. 
the title stab at matter um he's making a play on words there's an old latin hymn from the 1300s called the stabat mater s-t-a-b-a-t-m-a-t-e-r which is, is translates to something like mother is standing or stand there mother and it's about mary being at the foot of the cross watching jesus die and when he learned about that and had that in mind and was thinking about that concept then he took that into the realm of saying okay what what can i do with that that has to do with he says in in a description the destruction of ego or the inevitable destruction of the stuff we surround ourselves with man so this is a a new example of the kind of songwriting prowess this guy's that's so cool that you dove deep on the lyrical and the behind the scenes and where it all came from and i was listening to it more for feel because it it, it's not as wordy as some of his other songs and so therefore i was like oh i'm just going to get into the vibe of this and uh so just to hear you talk about that is it's nice to kind of pull back the layers and find out that there's a whole lot more going on than one might think upon first listen. We're closing in on the finish here, but there's one song here that we got to talk about. Uh, Last Night of the World. I've seen the flame of hope among the hopeless. And that was truly the biggest heartbreak of all. That was the straw that broke me open. So Chris, is this one that had that had crossed your uh, transom before, or or is this new to you? No, it's actually brand new to me. And what a beautiful tune, crazy and wonderful tune this was. I love to discover new things from an artist that I'm I'm very familiar with, and uh, it was this was just a great tune. This was on the record that came out, that Breakfast in New Orleans record that comes out in 1999, when the whole world is convinced that Y2K is going to end everything, right? Uh, all the computers are going to shut down or something like that. And I guess the story goes that he was hiking with Sam Phillips somewhere on the West Coast, and he always had this knapsack with him. And she said, what are you, what's in that bag? And he said, just, you know, stuff to survive the end of the world if it happens. And, And she's the one who I guess turned and said something like, well, you know, if it's the last night of the world, all you need is a bottle of champagne and two glasses. And and that had ha- that conversation had happened at some point, you know, prior, and it stuck in his head like that's a song. If 
This was the last night. What really matters in life? Love. This is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about uh, some of the the later songs uh, is because Coburn stopped getting airplay and it seems like the the awareness of his music started to wane a bit over the last 20 years but he just he never that doesn't mean that he stopped doing anything so there are 50 years worth of songs and we've just scratched the surface here um so man chris thanks for taking time to do this uh really appreciate it we look forward to hearing your new music thanks for being such a big supporter and helper and encourager as we've uh, launched this podcast again too yeah you know it's my pleasure I, i love homework assignments like this where you get to dive in and just you know enjoy every moment of it and uh bruce is musically playing very loudly in my house over the next few weeks for sure all right okay let's uh cool off the jukebox the tubes smell pretty hot you may find it hard to believe or maybe not that chris taylor and i actually talked about even more great coburn music we'll be sending an extended version of this jukebox segment to our patreon members so watch for that Okay, back to my conversation with Bruce Coburn. Struggle for a dollar, scuffle for a dime. Step out from the past and try to hold the line. So how come history such a long, long time When you're waiting for When you're waiting for it When you're waiting for a miracle You rub your palm on the grimy pain In the hope that you can see You talk about in your in your memoir when you were on one of your trips uh, to I believe it was Guatemala. It was one of your Central America trips, coming across a small book of poetry by a Jesuit priest named Ernesto Cardinal. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. Close enough. Yeah. Tell me about poetry because I'm I'm thinking about you at that stage in your life and how poetry becomes something that becomes so powerful for you it kind of has some kind of influence on you still at that age in, in your in your art making. So I'm still kind of searching for threads of hope and a, and a way out for any individuals, any of us that are trying to look for a, a plumb line out of the cave. Um, how has that spoken into your journey? 
I fell in love with poetry before I fell in love with music. I, I, when, as soon as I understood that you didn't have to make things rhyme, I started finding poems that I was really moved by. T.S. Eliot, uh, Dylan Thomas, other guys we studied in school, but, or that were in the school textbook, but we didn't really study because we studied the safer ones that didn't say as much. Those poets were in the books, and I went, I, it, it, like, the first time I read The Hollow Men, mm. the, the T.S. Eliot poem, I, it mm. was mind-blowing. It was, it was such a powerful kind of mind-expanding experience to see language used this way and to say the kinds of things he was saying at the age, at, you know, and that's kind of the age you were, more or less, probably when, when you heard... Uh, lovers in a dangerous time. I mean, it's you're ready, I guess, at that point in in, in your life for, for something to come along and and hit you a certain way. And poetry did that for me. And then you know, right after that came Elvis. And so, but um, I still go back to poetry all the time. But you mentioned Ernesto Cardinal. That it, it actually was. My brother, who gave me that book, he'd been doing solidarity work with the guerrilla movement in El Salvador, and and he was trying to get me interested in Central America, and he kept feeding me things. And one of the things was this little book by Ernesto Cardinal called Zero Hour, subtitled Documentary Poems. And it was basically a history of Nicaragua written poetically, I mean, translated from the Spanish, but but in a good translation and that read well in English and really, really powerful feeling stuff full of facts and details but full of feeling and and the, the sweep of history and all that along with that book was a, an american a book by an american poet named carolyn forche called the country between us which was about her experiences in el salvador and that was a heavy heavy book a small volume poems are short but just really vivid gripping poetry and i think those Things as much as well, more than most other things, made me curious about going to Central America. Also, I was getting fed all this information about the about the Sandinista Revolution, about the fact that what chiefly interested me was the fact that it did not seem to conform to my understanding of what revolutions were like, based on the French Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the various others, the Russian Revolution. There was no bloodbath. There was no. There were some instances, of course, of people taken up you know, personal revenge on on each other, but mostly it wasn't like that. And I, I got really curious to see what that wanted, what that would look like up close. Yankee, wake up. Don't you see what you're doing? think that learning how to read and listen to poetry and then even compose poetry does it do something 
to our our brain? Does it do something to our heart that makes us better listeners? Uh, does it does it shift something in us? Do you think um, that listening to a pop song or or something might might not quite get there? Well, it depends on the song. I mean, certainly there's some Bob Dylan songs that that are that do exactly that. Uh, in the same way that poetry does. I think you have to make a distinction, at least, well, maybe it's artificial, but I, I make a distinction between song lyrics and poetry. In my mind, poetry is written for the page or to be read in a spoken way, but it's it's divorced from musical considerations. When you put lyrics with a song, the lyrics are going to be shaped by the music to some extent. I don't like the idea of people reading my stuff on a page particularly because it's not supposed to go there. There's all these little things. If I were writing for the page, I would take out all the buts and ands and ifs and, and stuff that's in there just for rhythmic purposes. And That said, I mean, there's an awful lot of songwriting that is very poetic. Joni Mitchell's songwriting, Bob Dylan's songwriting, Leonard Cohen's songwriting, above all. All of those writers have come, have come up with songs that have touched me in the same way that the poetry has. But... But different, well, in a comparable way, let's say. The same way, no, it's because there, there is music. And the music carries an emotional punch, too, which is different from reading something on a page. Mm-hmm. One of the great disappointments for me, to the point of being laughable, was listening to T.S. Eliot read his own poetry. Because he, he adopted this, this ridiculous <laughs> oh, kind really? of sing-song incantat- incantatory style of reading like this and the quavery voice that was clearly not his own and just it was ridiculous like to hear this incredible poetry delivered that way i don't know what was what possessed him but but reading it on the page it's it's just without par one of the kind of themes we've landed on for this series of conversations is learning how to listen to better music and listen to music better even recognizing that in your songs there are so many that you don't even sing you're just speaking the lyric as a, it feels to me, as a recited poem with music happening in the background. And I, I, I always feel like, maybe I'm reading into it, but it feels kind of like what I imagine maybe hearkening back to the beat poets or something like that. Like it's got, there's music, there's some kind of rhythmic thing happening that, that provides the tracks for it. Yeah. But the lyric is functioning more like poetry, and I'm able to to process it in a in a different way intellectually and I think that the exercise for me has been to to engage things more mindfully and thoughtfully as opposed to just commercial music that kind of washes over you and it's disposable and it goes in one ear and out the other and down the drain. The spoken word stuff is, uh, there, were, there were times when what wants to be said just uh, doesn't want to be stuck to a melody, you know, or, or, or even a fixed rhythm. Mm-hmm. But, you're, you know, as you were saying, harking back to the B poets, I'm thinking, yeah, or even Homer. There's a guy who could recite you know, a hundred thousand lines of poetry yeah. playing the liar and couldn't even, and he was blind. I mean, if he existed at all, but, it, but, but, but that right. was the style, right? And so it's that, that yeah. the putting of words together with music in a, in a non-sung way has been with us for a long time. But I just found it interesting at times to try and fool around with that way of approaching the writing just to, I don't, see myself just standing on stage and delivering a poem particularly that feels weird and actually terrifying not to think of having a guitar doing something at the same time but but um (laughs) it seems like within what people call songwriting there's room for all sorts of 
uh, angles of approach. I'm a product of some parents of the sort that shouldn't breed. Didn't get my schooling past learning how to read. Got the poetry bug in some forgotten institution. First I did embark on this career of destitution. Set a hook in my soul Me like a bread crust soaking soup from a bowl You can call this a rant But I declare, I declare Alberti's poems are the name of the game We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Bruce Coburn after this. True Tunes is on the road. John's been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and is currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun with John bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join him. He's also hosted songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com events. And if you'd be interested in having John speak in your neck of the woods, drop him a line at jjt at truetunes.com to let him know. My name is Rob Burks, and I hosted John's San Diego Stop, where John invited Adam from Beach Chapel to join us and sing a few songs. John's presentation was both educational and inspirational. I can't recommend True Tunes Live highly enough. You can also find John at the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country. You can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, find John at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, connect with him directly. And now, more of my conversation with Bruce Coburn. At the end of your book, you say, people who maintain a relationship with the divine, no matter the religion or sect or specified belief system, will bear a special burden It's the burden of healing that is so needed after our poor stewardship of this blessed earth and of each other. Can you think of any specific examples of how we can walk in that, how we can actually start to be better neighbors and better family members to each other and to the earth? Uh, You know, (laughs) I wish I had a good answer. The challenge, I mean, it it seems to me, uh, and this is, it, it all comes down to love. And respect, as hard as it is at times, and at times it's literally impossible, you have to try to love everybody and treat everybody with respect. And it starts there. And then what happens after that is going to be determined by you know, the specific context, probably. But in terms of the planet, love and respect applies there, too, I think. Uh, I, if you think it's all about money, you're going to make different choices than if you think it's all about love and respect. There's nothing wrong with money. I mean, well, there is, actually, but it's been with us for so long that it, it's, it's part of us, and 
Mm. So we don't need to worry about it too much. But letting money make decisions for you is wrong and a bad mistake. And there are people, plenty of people in the world for whom that problem is a real day-to-day thing where people who don't have much and money becomes a very dominant part of their thinking. And I suppose it therefore falls on those of us who are doing better to try to lessen the burden on those people as much as we can. I don't know what that really means in any given situation, but there probably is some way in which you can apply that to your own life. In the meantime, you know, it's like, don't trash the place. <laughs> it's all we've got. Like this, you know, I, I grew up in an era, well, not the era, it was the, <laughs> right. going to um, summer camp, you know. We'd go on, on these canoe trips and we'd have, sometimes for two weeks. And we were staying and it was in a provincial park, so there were campsites that were, they weren't formal in a, in, in a way, but they were designated and, and you knew where to find them there on the map. But the, the rule was always leave your campsite better than you found it. That's a pretty good rule to follow all the way around, you know. And that was out of respect for the next people who came along. And once in a while, you'd come into a campsite where people hadn't done that. It was where there's trash lying around or where, you know, in a worst-case scenario, somebody didn't put their campfire out and there was a forest fire, you know. But just that principle of taking care of stuff because somebody else might need it and you might need it. And you want other people to take care of it because mm-hmm. you're going to need the stuff they leave behind them. Everything mm-hmm. feeds everything else. In the era of the internet and everything else, we've kind of large chunks of the world have lost sight of, of, of large chunks of that notion. You know, it's mm-hmm. easy to be rude. It's easy to be hostile. It's easy to give vent to the anger that we all carry in us just because we're part of this species that has it in us. And, and to give vent to that anger in, in ways that are not safe and not useful and help no one. You know, we, we're offered all kinds of right. avenues for that kind of expression, but we need to rein that in and try and look for, for ways to express appreciation for each other. been seven years since you finished the book. If you were going to go add a chapter or two to the end, what are the highlights of things you've observed over the last few years that happened just after you turned in the manuscript? My life changed completely around that time that I was writing the book because I I got into a new relationship, not right then, but shortly before that. And we have a daughter who's now 10 years old. And so my life's been much more family oriented than it had been for a very long time, if ever, actually because I'm not quite the same with respect to family as I was when I was young. And so that's been the main theme, really. I, you know, there's been lots of neat stuff happen. I've traveled in some good places and 
you know, but most of my travel since then has been either recreational or, uh, or touring. We had a great, my wife and I spent a, before Iona was born, actually, we spent several weeks, four or five weeks in Buenos Aires doing a Spanish immersion course. That was a big adventure. And then shortly after that, we went to Nepal for my second time there in connection with the work of what was then called USC Canada. It's now called Seed Change, but a charitable organization that does development work in, in countries like Nepal. And so, and we spent five weeks or four weeks on, in Nepal trekking around in the mountains. And, and that was an incredible adventure. We've had really nice holidays in, in Maui. We've had, you know, and, or when I get really desperate for snow, we can, we, we can go from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe and hang around in the snow in the winter. And it's been a while since we've done that now, but, but I'm quite ready for another one of those. This is the kind of stuff, other than touring and, and just kind of carrying on with general life, it, it's... But um, my brother, not the brother who gave me the Ernesto, Ernesto Cardinal book, but uh, my other brother, John, decided at the age of 55 to join the Canadian Army. And he's a doctor, and they were recruiting doctors, and they needed people, you know. So he did a six-month tour in Kandahar. And I went over because I could. I, got, I managed to get on one of those sort of, this is the Canadian counterpart of a USO trip to sing for the troops. And I went over and spent a week in Kandahar, and, and, or at Kandahar Airfield, actually, not in the city of Kandahar. That was super interesting, and, and it's the first time I'd been in a war zone with people whose language I spoke, so I could actually talk to the soldiers about what they were thinking and feeling. It was really, really interesting. A story did break last fall that, that really got my attention, and that was that you had actually been playing guitar in the worship band at a church for a long time and that they didn't know who you were. I've got to hear something about that story, because that is just <laughs> There's not much to amazing it, to me. But no, I... I my wife discovered the church. She got in, uh, embarked on a kind of very serious and extended period of spiritual inquiry based because of the death of a friend. And she was exploring. She'd grown up Catholic and didn't have much use for that approach to Christianity. But she was looking at other things and discovered this little church uh, in San Francisco and started going to it. And I, do, I wasn't going. I hadn't gone to church for decades and just... I didn't see myself as somebody who went to church anymore. But then eventually she persuaded me to go with her. She said, well, you know, if nothing else, the music's really great. And the pastor's really, like, you know, he's got lots of good things to say. You'll like him. So I went, and she was right about both those things. But the biggest thing of all was I walked in the door of this place. And it's a former synagogue, actually, that was doing business as a Christian church now. Walked in the doors, and I just was hit with this wall of love. It was like, how could I not keep coming to this? It's just so much heart openness in, in this little group of people. And, and in, the, in the room itself, it seemed. Forty years in the wilderness Getting to know the beasts Projected and reflected On the greatest and the least Forty years of days and nights Angels hovering Kept me moving forward Though the way was far from clear And they said Take up your load Run south to the road Turn to the setting sun The sun 
going down Got to cover some ground Before everything comes undone Take up your load Run south to the road Turn to the setting sun Sun going down Got to cover some ground Before everything comes undone Comes undone Eventually it turned up In conversation I let people know I played guitar And it's like, oh you know, come sit in with the band. And so I thought, you know, this will be fun because I'll go get to go play electric guitar and play songs I don't know, and that'll be fun. So I I did that, and then it, it just kind of grew from there until I more or less became part of the band. And, and Did they recognize you? Did somebody kind of out you well, or something and say, wait, who, who is this that guy? Did, no, it didn't, that didn't happen, but, but um, <laughs> they were happy to have somebody that could play, and they were missing a guitar player. And... and uh, at first, it was just that, and then little by little, they got to know more about me, and I, and and somebody, some people probably looked me up and figured out what was going on. But but uh, they had a bunch of great singers, and and uh, when we did the Bone on Bone album, I wanted to get those singers on the record because I was having fun playing with them, and 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 I thought it'd be great to to have their voices on the record. So they sing on a couple of things on on that album. And at that point, I mean, they, you know, they came over to the studio. They came over one of the mixed days and we devoted it to recording them. You know, so they got to kind of, you know, see me in that world. But that's the only time they did. And I, when the album came out, I went around, I got all these CDs. And I went, I was going to give everybody a CD, but none of them had CD players. of young people are leaving the church, not necessarily leaving their concept of faith, but they're leaving the church in droves. You kind of did that a long time ago and then found yourself sort of open at least to going back. You're saying that in order for churches to actually welcome people that are that consider themselves to be outside of that, they just need to create a wall of love. Is that what I yes, hear you saying? It, it just saying it like that makes it sound like like 
like anybody can flip that switch. It's, there's more than that at play. I feel I've always felt that when something like that happens in my life, that it's I'm being shown something. It's not it's not an accident, you know. So I found myself at this church, and it was offering me something that I hadn't had in well, it was offering me something I'd never had in a way, but a version of something that I hadn't had for a very long time. And it just seemed like the right time to be there. Like, okay, well, now I, now I get why I'm in San Francisco. Now I get why I'm... I mean, I don't really care where I live. I, uh, you know, as long as it's got an airport, it doesn't matter. I mean, every place has its beauty and its pain. So right. I like San Francisco. I, mean, I don't take it for granted either. I mean, I've been yeah. given lots of good places to live in, but I'm always wondering why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like, what's the point of this? Where is this going? You know, yeah. and an experience like walking into that church was part of that you know i saw it in in those terms in a big way so i've kept my association with them and and will continue until it turns into something else you know th- this church is tolerant i mean there's there, there's the congregation is polyracial polyethnic poly gender you know i mean it, it, there's anybody that wants to go there can go there and be loved mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of recovering substance abusers and you know it's a small congregation excuse me uh so you know when i say there's some of everybody represented i mean there's like one of everybody (laughs) you know or two or three of everybody there Um, it kind of sounds like a family well it does sound like a family and it feels like a family except that nobody fights with anybody (laughs) which is pretty good On the cover of the Greatest Hits record, you know, your album covers have often either been very artistic visual representations, or if there is a photo of you, you've never been smiling, I don't think, on any of them. This one, you've got a really particular kind of expression going on. It's a really unique smile. Um, Do you recall what you were thinking when that picture was taken and what it was about that image that that made you choose that to be the cover of this collection? I was really enjoying that Manhattan. <laughs> that, that bar is closed at the moment for, for some months' worth of renovations, but the, it's right near where where we live. And uh, so I, I'd be in there fairly often, usually waiting for takeout orders for food, uh, especially through the COVID thing after we... We would go there for dinner sometimes, but but uh, you know when COVID hit, we, anything we did there was takeout. So, but you could have a drink while you're waiting for the takeout. So I'm having a drink, waiting for my takeout, and chatting with the bartender who I've had, uh, you know, some degree of acquaintance with from having been in there a bunch of times. And she she had a sense. She knew, well, she knew something about me. Yeah, she made really good Manhattans and so so there I am drinking in Manhattan and and, and, I, and wearing the outfit I was wearing and she said can I take a picture so so I said yeah okay so she took a picture and it, then, it ended up being the album cover oh I have been a beggar and shall 
such a great example uh, and inspiration for a lot of us who are on this artistic journey, the spiritual journey, and a civic like community journey. And it and it feels to me that um, the social media, the the climate, the culture we're in right now has has reduced and and brutalized a lot of these words. But when we think about our spiritual path, our creative artistic path, and our ethics. To me, I never understood the separation, and and your work has stood as an example of, of an artist who has stayed that course and said, no, we don't have to just um, entertain the the church folks, and we don't have to create propaganda. We don't have to just limit things. There's a way to push all of these things and stay integrated, so that we are we have our our hope and our faith and our love integrated in with our justice and our civics. And we're doing it artfully. Um, and there's just very few people that have done it as well as you have. So it's just a real honor and, and privilege to talk to you this long. And uh, and I know that our listeners are going to uh, really uh, value it as well. So I extend a whole lot of love your way from from a lot of people that have, that have been on this uh, trajectory for a while. And you've been a, a real uh, inspiration in that way. Back at you. You know, thank you for the, the very kind words. I... I Somewhere along the way, I discovered I love my audience. I didn't start out thinking that at all. I was terrified of them, but I but it just grew slowly over time. And I'm hopeful that we can get back into some <laughs> routine of life where where we can actually have live performances and people come to the shows and where it isn't so iffy all the time. Because that those those live occasions are really where where I get to feel the, the, the rewards of what I do and where we all get to share this time and space uh, using the songs as an excuse, as an excuse really, you know. And I, I love that, so hopefully we can be doing more of it. One day I shall be There you have it. We started to experience some technical problems at the end. Our connection was getting dicey and a little bit out of sync. There was so much more I'd love to have talked with him about, including his thoughts on Mark Hurd and Michael Bean, but it felt like we had run out of time. For now. Hopefully we can reconnect down the line. Thanks, though, Bruce, for your generosity and your patience with the connection issues. And a special thank you to Bruce's management.
As I pull out my soapbox to wrap this up, I'm thinking about Shakespeare and a handful of customers that were really mad at me for selling Bruce Coburn's music at True Tunes back in the day. The Shakespeare memory is from The Merchant of Venice, which I was forced to read in high school right when I was first falling in love with music by Coburn, as well as The Call, Mark Hurd, T-Bone Burnett, Daniel Amos, Rez Band, and early U2, and around the time I got my first job at Wheaton Religious Gift Shop, which eventually led to the creation of True Tunes. In Act 2, Scene 2, young Launcelot Gobbo, servant of the wicked Shylock, is playing a trick on his blind old father who is looking for him. It's interesting to note that Launcelot was conflicted between a sense of loyalty to his cunning master and his desire to break free and build a life he could be proud of. Launcelot says to his father, Nay, indeed, if you had your eyes, you might fail of the knowing of me. It is a wise father that knows his own child. Well, old man, I will tell you news of your son. Give me your blessing. Truth will come to light. Murder cannot be hid long. A man's son may, but at the length, truth will out. This is the bit of art that gives us the saying, truth will out. We talked about this at length in my high school class. Truth will out, or more commonly, though inaccurately, the truth will out, has since become a ubiquitous cliche in English-speaking cultures. The truth will eventually be revealed, yes, but also the truth will do some revealing of its own. Injustice of any kind can't stay hidden forever. It's just a matter of time. As the freshly minted music buyer at Wheaton Religious, I was given all of the grunt work, most of which I secretly loved. But when those duties were done, I got to manage the music department, a corner of the store that was my domain. And I worked hard to make sure that that little corner was stocked with the best music. Not just obviously religious stuff, but all the stuff that T-Bone Burnett described as being about what we see by the light, as opposed to being specifically about the light. So, unlike most Christian bookstores, we stocked Burnett and Midnight Oil and U2 and Simple Minds and Bruce Coburn. The thing is, Bruce Coburn sometimes cussed. And not just on some obscure album tracks. He dropped the F-bomb on his song Call It Democracy and said some son of a bitch would die on the radio hit If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Those two songs were enough to have some people be really upset with me for selling his music at all. The fact that those two songs were both anchored passionately in issues of justice and indignation was lost on the haters. They didn't care. It was the words that offended them. They couldn't even hear the ideas being presented. The whole thing baffled me. I talked to my boss, Phil Taschetta, about it. The kid in the job before me had been the one who built that music section and started stocking Coburn. He had warned me about the Pharisees who might chime in from time to time. After a particularly nasty rebuke from a customer, I remember going to Phil to get his opinion. He looked at the lyrics, listened to the song, and thought about it all in context. He said something to the effect of, I can't imagine being exposed to that kind of inhuman injustice and not swearing. Coburn's indignation was biblical, prophetic even. He was as bold about admitting that yes, he was a Christian whenever asked, as he was about calling out the hypocrisy he saw being perpetrated, sometimes in the name of religion, and other times with at least the tacit blessing of the rising religious right in the U.S. Phil recognized that reality. 
He was a passionate believer and a fiercely observant Catholic. He said we should be careful about how we promote that music and not to play it in the store where someone might hear it and react without getting the benefit of context. But as far as those people claiming that Jesus was on their side as they chose the targets for their bombs and justified the murder of thousands of innocents, they weren't on the side of the gospel. The truth will out, he said. Boy, did that land with me. While I was fine with the justification for supporting Coburn's music, the idea that truth will out, the hypocrites and the liars, the idol worshippers and the Pharisees, will all be revealed in the end, that kind of freaked me out. Where was I in relation to that truth? In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus interacts with a woman and man caught in the act of adultery. After his famous rebuke that anyone without sin should be the one to cast the first stone, his promise to the woman that he did not condemn her, and after making several brazen claims about light and darkness and who he really was and how so many of the most religious people were doomed because they would not accept him, he laid down the ultimate promise. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Wow. For some, the truth outs them. It reveals both their external injustices and the imbalance of their soul. For others, the truth sets them free. And if something or someone is true, it or they do not need us to fight for or defend that truth. The truth defends itself. We either work with it or against it, but we don't ever need to fight others for it, even if, like Jesus, we end up murdered as a result of following it or speaking it. The cross reminds me that Jesus refused to fight for himself, but he would die for others, including his enemies. Decades later, as I glance around our spiritual and cultural landscape, I am reminded of my first boss, Phil Taschetta, and the words of Shakespeare, and Jesus. Truth will out, and truth will set us free. Okay, I'm putting away my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a minute to tell your friends and family about the show. Give us a good review at Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you can. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Bruce Coburn's music is available through most digital outlets, but definitely check out brucecoburn.com. I want to thank my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown, for his wisdom and encouragement here on the show and elsewhere. And also, as always, thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. You'll find a complete list of all of the songs used in this episode on the show notes page at truetunes.com. And please support the artists you love. Buy their music, join their Patreon programs, back their Kickstarter programs, see them when they play in your town. The contents of the True Tunes podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401 Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to keep kicking at that darkness because the daylight is starting to leak through. Peace.
see it. I see that we've frozen up a little bit here. You have a great smile, but I'm not. You're not moving, and I'm not hearing you. So I'm going to take this thing downstairs and see if we can get a better signal. Hey, it's Franklin. Come in your house. Hey, it's Franklin. Come into my house. Hey, it's Franklin. <laughs>